This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Mark Weber, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Thank you for having me on. I think we should probably uh, introduce by talking about why why this is a subject we're talking about. Um, I mean, what we're talking about is one aspect of an issue that's really taboo in our in our times. It's the issue of Jewish power. Uh, it, basically, we're not really even allowed or uh, permitted, welcome to even talk about this subject. But um, there's many aspects of this issue. <clears throat> if somebody even touches touches on this issue, uh, it's a, it's a dangerous thing. What we call the third rail. Uh, uh, bad things tend to happen. Everybody's supposed to shut up about it. But one of the most uh, remarkable expressions of power, of Jewish power, happened about a century ago in Russia when the Bolsheviks took power. Um, many, many Jews, even uh, in the United States and Europe and so forth, who don't really care about communism or Bolshevism, took a kind of pride that the first uh, mar army, military force in modern times, to play a significant role in the life of nations, to be led by a Jew was the Red Army, led by Leon Trotsky in Russia. I mean, this is tremendous power. And what we're talking, what we're going to be talking about is the really oversized, decisive, very large Jewish role in bringing about uh, the uh, triumph of Bolshevism, of communism in Russia. And this is a subject that's very, very touchy for many people, but there's really no question about the facts of the matter. And any number of Jewish scholars, Jewish writers, uh, others have have confirmed this thing, but it's not very well known and should be better well better understood than it really is. So I think maybe we should just say that's what we're going to be talking about. What was the how Jewish? How what was the Jewish role in the Bolshevik communist takeover of Russia in 1917 and in setting up a regime which uh, was at least for a time the most daring, the most progressive, but also the most oppressive in the world for many, many years. And of course, it all fell apart in the late 1980s, 1991. But for a long time, this colossus was not only awesome and fearsome to much of the world, but it was also very inspiring. People forget, too, that uh, communism had enormous appeal to millions and millions of people around the world for a long time, and for much of the same reason <clears throat> that those people who talk about <clears throat> a progressive, egalitarian world in which there will never again be war and oppression, that sounds very good. But uh, history shows, I think, that whenever people take power and try to create a society that's not based on reality, that's based on premises that are not workable, that has no historical precedent, uh, inevitably fail, because we're talking about human beings. And human beings are not plastic. Uh, we are the way we are. Human beings are the way we are. And we have to deal with people and society as it is. Anyway, the Bolshevik experiment is an amazing one. And Jews played a very, very large role, very important role in that taking power. And that's what I think we're going to be talking about. Where do we begin our story? I think we should begin with communism. Uh, communism is an ideology. It began with, uh, in the brain, you might say, of Karl Marx. Karl Marx was Jewish. He was born in what's now Western Germany, uh, Southwest Germany. 
he was well educated. He came from a long line of rabbis, actually, but his father uh, converted to Christianity so that uh, it would help his career. And Karl Marx grew up, uh, I guess, nominally uh, non-Jewish, or actually just wasn't even religious. But from a very early age, he was a revolutionary, a militant. And uh, as, even as a teenager, as a young man, he was urging sort of the overthrow of the old regime in Germany. Then he was in exile in uh, uh, Belgium and in England. And it was in, in Britain where he and uh, his uh, patron, Frederick Engels, wrote the Communist Manifesto. And the Communist Manifesto still has tremendous appeal and punch. It's a really kind of stirring document. And it calls for a world in which ultimately from each according to his needs, uh, uh, from each according to his abilities to each according to his needs, a world of such plenty, of such equality, uh, that there will never again be oppression, war, and so forth. But communism is, so it starts as an ideology. It starts as a blueprint. It starts as an idea. And the, what Karl Marx did is um, present what he said was a scientific basis for this. Marxism isn't just some dream. It's not just, uh, he would say, idealized, an idealization. He says it's inevitable because he laid out a whole lot of reasons, which I think are wrong, but he laid out a whole lot of reasons why the triumph of Marxism was going to be inevitable. And he had a historical analysis, an economic analysis, and so forth. And this inspired many, many people. Um, and uh, one of those was uh, Vladimir Lenin and uh, the Bolsheviks in Russia. Now, Marxism got a lot more support in the 19th century from uh, workers in uh, in industrial world, especially in Germany, France, and so forth. And uh, uh, the parties that were founded were Marxist parties. But Lenin wanted to bring about Marxism in Russia. Now, it's not supposed to happen in Russia because Russia at the beginning of the 20th century was a very underdeveloped country. It was overwhelmingly rural, overwhelmingly agricultural, population overwhelmingly peasants. And uh, Marxism, that's one of the last places, but Marx was able, I mean, excuse me, Lenin was able to take power and others dedicated to this vision, this secular messianic vision. That's an important thing because I think um, uh, Marxism, the entire Marxist outlook has, it's rooted in a kind of Jewish worldview. The Jewish historical worldview is that history is moving in a certain direction and that there, was a, there will be an end point at which either the Messiah returns in religious terms or there's a final triumph of the working class in secular Marxist terms. And out of that comes a kind of wonderful new society and world. And uh, Lenin uh, was, um, uh, spent his uh, life working for this dream. And it was only the fortuitous series of events that propelled him into power. In 1917, he was living in exile in uh, Switzerland, in Zurich. Um, he was still writing his uh, manifestos or screeds or so forth, working on, on the underground in, in, uh, to try to bring about uh, uh, support, get support in Russia itself. But the Tsar was overthrown in uh, Russia because of the terrible calamity of the First World War in Russia. The First World War was a huge disaster for Russia. So millions of people uh, dead, uh, life ruined. Russia was was not exactly, it wasn't, it didn't lose, but it was losing this war. Uh, Germany and Austria-Hungary were, 
And out of that came the overthrow of the Tsar. The Tsar abdicated. Lenin was living in exile at the time. And he was, uh, this is in April 1917. Just a few months before that, he had given a talk in Zurich uh, to a small group of people. And he said, we of the older generation may never even see the triumph of Marxism, um, the triumph of the working class in Russia. A year later, he was in charge and heading a Bolshevik uh, Soviet state in Russia itself. Anyway, around them, though, were very, very large percentage of, of Jews. And Jews uh, were attracted to this, not only because the whole Marxist outlook was sort of in keeping with a kind of messianic view that I think comes from Marxism, but also because uh, for Jews, the czarist regime in Russia was the most hated one of all, because it was explicitly, it had laws in place that explicitly discriminated against Jews. And so for many, many Jews, this was the regime to overthrow and uh, the country in which to bring about this new order. And uh, so that's the kind of background. And then Lenin was able to get to Russia by making a deal with the Germans because Russia was sort of cut off. The Germans were glad to ship him to Russia because he was going to try to overthrow the regime that Germany and Austria-Hungary were fighting during the First World War. And uh, yeah, he succeeded all right. And uh, the rest is, as they say, is history. For those who don't know what the phrase Bolsheviks means, it was essentially the very far left communist revolutionary types. Well, the, the, uh, the Russian Social Democratic Party was a Marxist party. And at one Congress, one meeting, it was broken into two factions. The Mensheviks, it comes from the word for minority, and the Bolsheviks were the majority on one particular issue. And so they called themselves Bolsheviks. It means more radical uh, so, uh, Russian Marxist militants. And the specific issue is Lenin believed in a party, not a mass party, but a party of dedicated activists, of cadres, who were disciplined. He wasn't interested in taking power so much by appealing to voters because he felt, like many Marxists do, that most people have what they call false consciousness. They're not as aware as the leaders. Now, the odd thing about it is that Lenin and the others took power in the name of the working class. Almost none of them were actually workers. They were intellectuals, writers, professional people. Lenin was a lawyer. Um, none of them were really workers in the normal sense of the word, but they took power in the name of the working class. And they were aware that most workers didn't have the same uh, dedication, the same determination that the leaders did, uh, including Lenin, Trotsky, and the other uh, Bolshevik leaders. But the Bolsheviks is just a shorthand for uh, Soviet communism, basically, or militant communism. Tsar Nicholas and his family uh, were essentially jailed. The Bolsheviks then executed the family, as yes. far as I understand. Mm -hmm. Now, yes. how how is it that so many Jews ended up not only in Russia, but in Russian government? Right. Well, because the uh, Jews were um, uh, attracted to Marxism. This was a way, and now you can get into motives, but many people, of course, regard uh, much of the motivation as a kind of hatred of the old order, a hatred of Gentile society, especially of Russian society. Russian society at that time overwhelmingly, the people were religious, overwhelmingly Russian Orthodox in their religion, uh, peasants, and 
Marxists uh, in general, but especially Jewish Marxists, looked down upon these people as backward. They looked at them not as people, but you might say as as uh, a kind of clay to fashion them into a new society. And this is a very important point that Marxists and people uh, people like this, these sort of militant <clears throat> egalitarians, you might say, utopian. They, 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 they say they love humanity, but they don't like people very much. And this is a common thing of, of such people. Lenin wasn't uh, much of a nice guy with people, but he had this idea that he was doing everything in the name of the people, but it meant a tremendous amount of actual oppression to try to make people into a kind of new people. I mean, Trotsky, who was, you might say, the number two man in the whole Bolshevik uh, enterprise and taking over, he wrote an essay about how people would be under communism. And he has this fantastic notion that people will be smarter, stronger, better. Human beings would just be better and different. And uh, everything would just be a new world. Everything was going to be different. Now, trying to make uh, uh, people conform to this vision is a real task. And it can only be done but with a lot of force, oppression, and even killing, of course, to make this happen. This is one of the important points about the whole communist experiment, because we hear endlessly, of course, about the Holocaust, we hear about fascism, we hear about Hitler, but almost all historians will grant that more people were killed by the communist regime of the Soviet Union and of China than were killed by Hitler. But we don't hear that, because people's attitude is, well, their intentions were good. They wanted an egalitarian society. So that's not as bad as when people are killed for some other reason. Well, of course, people are still killed. It's very terrible and so forth. But particularly those people who lived in the Soviet Union, Russia, Soviet Union, or Eastern Europe, they're far more aware of the reality of all of this than people in the West. A number of Russians have uh, remarked with astonishment that the only true Marxist left that they can find are in universities and uh, think tanks in, in the West. There are very few real Marxists left in the countries that have ha experienced Marxism. That's not how people are. But it's still attractive to people who are intellectuals. 1970, 1918, thereabouts, the Bolsheviks took over the government and they had this overrepresentation of Jews. What yes. happened next? Well, one important, one important point is that the whole Bolshevik takeover has, was rep, misrepresented by uh, the Soviet Union for its entire existence. They called it the Great October Revolution. Um, it actually took place because of the changes in calendars in early November, but they called it the Great October Revolution. In fact, it wasn't a revolution. It was a, it was a coup. A really small number of Bolsheviks took power in Petersburg uh, from the so-called provisional government. It wasn't any popular movement. In fact, the Bolsheviks didn't have very much popular support. They were able temporarily to win a majority of support in the so-called workers and soldiers councils in Moscow and Petersburg. But their support, especially in the vast rural areas of Russia, was almost non-existent. And even in the cities, it was, very, uh, it was not a majority. But they were able to leverage the power they had and take power in Petersburg and in, uh, in Moscow and then hold on to this power ruthlessly 
and then uh, uh, prevail enough to establish the state. Now, in the, fir the first, uh, uh, but more to the point, almost all of the leaders of the early Bolshevik regime and who took over were Jewish. Lenin himself was one quarter Jewish. But the person who was actually the main organizer of the takeover in Petersburg and Moscow was Leon Trotsky. His born name was not Trotsky. It was a, many, many Bolshevik leaders used fake names. Lenin's name was fake. His real family name was Ulanov, and he uses, used his pen name Lenin. Uh, Trotsky's real name was um, uh, Leon, uh, 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 Lev Bronstein, uh, Kamenev, Zinoviev. Uh, Sverdlov, all of those, all these people were, were Jewish. And they were, and, and in almost all these cases, that was not their born name. The first president, at least putatively, of the new Bolshevik regime was Yakov Sverdlov. He was, he was Jewish. Um, and Jews played this very, very oversized role in the regime at that time. Now, it's important to, to remember that this was understood by people pretty widely at the time. It wasn't, uh, it's now, uh, there's, a, there's a, a lot of uh, people who try to dispute it or don't talk about it. But even the American ambassador and ambassadors of foreign countries in Petersburg at the time said, essentially, the Jews have taken over in Russia. One of the most interesting uh, testimonies of this role came from Winston Churchill. In 1920, he had an article in a, mag, uh, a periodical in London called the Illustrated Sunday Herald, and he wrote this. This is Churchill. There is no need to exaggerate the part played in the creation of Bolshevism and in the actual bringing about of the Russian Revolution by these international and, for the most part, atheistical Jews. It is certainly a very great one. It probably outweighs all others. With the notable exception of Lenin, the majority of the leading figures are Jews. Moreover, the principal inspiration and driving power comes from the Jewish leaders. He wrote, in the Soviet institutions, the predominance of Jews is even more astonishing. And the prominent, if not, not indeed the principal part of the system of terrorism applied by the Extraordinary Commission for Combating Counter-Revolution, the so-called Cheka, has been taken by Jews and in some notable cases by Jewesses. Needless to say, the most intense passions of revenge have been excited in the breasts of the Russian people. Uh, the American ambassador in, in Petrograd or Petersburg, David Francis, wrote, the Bolshevik leaders here, most of whom are Jews and 90% of whom are returned exiles, care little for Russia or any other country, but are internationalists and are trying to start a worldwide social revolution. And that's an important point. The people who took over weren't really interested because they're Marxists. They don't really care about Russia. They don't care about uh, their interest is a worldwide uh, so, uh, Soviet state. Remember, the country wasn't called uh, Soviet Russia. I mean, the name of the country was the Union of, Soviet, Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. And ultimately, the entire world was to be a Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. The seal or the uh, icon or the seal, the state seal of the Soviet Union didn't show, uh, it had a, a globe, it didn't show the map of Russia, it showed the hammer and sickle over the entire world. And that's what Lenin, Trotsky, and these people wanted. They hoped and expected that the triumph and the success of Bolshevism in Russia would be quickly followed by the triumph and success of uh, communism throughout Western Europe and ultimately in all of the industrial countries and ultimately in the entire world.
That's the goal. And nationalism for uh, committed uh, uh, communists and Marxists is, is a vestige of, a, of an age that should be gone. People shouldn't have loyalties other than class loyalties. That's the, one of the central tenets of the Communist Manifesto and the Marxists. People, but it's a false reading of really of human beings. Human beings aren't like that. We identify not first and foremost, we, we, of course, we're workers or whatever our occupation is, but that's not first and foremost our identity. And it's not ultimately the motivation. That's one of the central fallacies of the Communist Manifesto. One of the most famous phrases in the Communist Manifesto is the history of all hitherto existing societies is the history of class uh, warfare. Well, it's not. No, class warfare is important and has played a role in history, but it's nowhere near, doesn't even come close to the important um, motivation of nations, tribes, even religion plays a bigger role in explaining the clashes and the forces and the dynamics of history than does, uh, than does class consciousness. Class consciousness has played a role, but it's, it's and, and this is a false reading of history and the attempt to try to make a society based on a false sense of people's identity and who they are, how the people we think of themselves can only lead to a, a disaster, a catastrophe. You could say Marxists, Marxists are, I mean, it, again, it gets to the question of motivation and the individual motivation of any human being is often difficult to determine, even by the person involved. As human beings, we often give ourselves motivations. We'll say, oh, we're, we give ourselves an altruistic reason why we do this or that. One of the, I mean, but many Jewish writers have said that Marxism is motivated for many people by a hatred of uh, historical Gentile society. Now, I, I'm not going to say that that's true, but that point has been made by many people that if you're a Marxist, uh, much of the uh, fury and anger is a fury at, at, at the way things are. There's, uh, uh, they don't like uh, uh, religion playing the role, for example. They, they believe that religion is bad, it should be eliminated. And they, they don't just dislike it, they hate it. They think that, and, and, they, and maybe, uh, and all, in the case of Russia, many Jews, of course, felt resentment, uh, hatred, really for a regime, the Russian czarist regime, uh, which said we are explicitly Russian, uh, Orthodox, Christian, and so forth. And many, many Jews hate that. They don't like that. Um, and another point, too, is that, um, and I think there is ability to this, Marxism is a kind of secular Jewish messianic, messianic outlook that comes, that's in the Bible that there's going to be this kind of triumph. Remember, the Old Testament promises uh, a future in which over and over in the Old Testament, Jews are promised that if they have a special relationship with God, and if they follow the rules, uh, they will live in cities they didn't build. The Gentiles will bow down to them. The Gentiles will serve them. They will rule over all non-Jews. Now, that's an extreme thing that comes from the Old Testament. But in a sense, that's sort of, you could say, a uh, Marxism is a version of that. Gentiles are going to have to obey Trotsky and Sverdlov and Kamenev and those people 
and uh, not their own leader, not their own people. We're in charge now. And that gives, of course, people who have this uh, triumphalist, uh, arrogant kind of view, we're the tops, we're best, we're chosen. Now, again, this gets into motivation. But the fact is, the, the, the indisputable fact is, Marxism was enormously popular, not just in Russia. Jews, especially Jewish intellectuals in uh, Western Europe and in the United States also were very sympathetic to uh, the Bolshevik experiment in Russia. I mean, I knew one, one, one Jewish uh, writer, intellectual, who grew up in the 1930s, he's now dead, in New York. And he said in those days and in his milieu, in his background, Everyone was either a Communist Party member or a sympathizer of the Communist Party. There was this enormous feeling. I myself uh, went to a, a rally once, I mean, a big, a big convention of the Communist Party USA in Chicago. Maybe half the people were, were Jews. There was uh, blacks, there was so forth. But Jews were very, very, and always have been attracted to this. And Jews played this very outsized very prominent role in the uh, communist movements, not just in Russia, but in Germany, uh, Britain, France, the United States, uh, and, and other countries as well. And it, it seems to uh, appeal to something you might see in the Jewish character, the Jewish heritage, something that uh, uh, makes, makes the whole Bolshevik experiment uh, daring and appealing at the same time. What was the impact on the Russian population by the Bolshevik government? The Bolsheviks took power on the basis of some very simple slogans that were very appealing. For one thing, they promised peace, land, and bread. They promised that they were going to end the war. The Russians by this time overwhelmingly were completely sick of the war. The war had been a, was a catastrophe by 1917. And so that was appealing. Uh, land, they, they basically encouraged people to just seize land from landowners. So that was very appealing to many people and bread. But the, the people, the, the non-Jews or the ordinary people who supported Bolshevism at that time, again, it was still a minority, but they did so on the basis of slogans that were uh, uh, to the, <laughs> at the very least deceitful. Uh, they didn't really reveal uh, and, and play up the, the sort of implications of what Marxism was going to mean. It, it quickly became clear, though, for many people uh, in Russia that Bolshevism was something very alien. The average Russian peasant, he couldn't even get his head around concepts like international proletarian internationalism. What the heck does that mean? Or he would just simply... Um, uh, uh, people living in a little village, here come people in uh, leather jackets, uh, Jews coming in who uh, start uh, tearing down their churches and seizing their uh, food. And they say, well, who are these people? Well, for millions of Russians, there was a very strong identification of um, Bolsheviks with Jews because Jews played this huge role in the thing. And it wasn't, it wasn't, un but but the whole idea of trying to get uh, ordinary people to um, support Bolshevism, this became very difficult in the Civil War. Now, the reasons the Bolsheviks were able to prevail in the Civil War, largely, I think, and most historians will agree, is because the opposition came from people of the old uh, order, military people from the Tsarist regime, who uh, themselves 
had no real regard for ordinary people. They wanted to just restore the old hierarchy that they were on top and ordinary people were at the bottom. And the Bolsheviks were able to appeal to people who said, well, that was wrong. And so they were able to hold on to power and ultimately prevail. So anyway, my, in answer to your question, uh, the, 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 there was a, a mixed reaction from many uh, ordinary people, but eventually this turned into a tremendous opposition. In World War II, this is a point Solzhenitsyn makes, never in history, in the second, uh, uh, never in history have so many citizens of a country supported their enemies in warfare against their own government as people did in the Soviet Union during World War II against the, the, the Bolsheviks. Millions of people in Ukraine, the Baltic states, and other people welcomed the Germans as, as liberators. And even many Russians were so uh, uh, horrified by what uh, Stalinist uh, Soviet system really meant in terms of oppression, seizing grain, all, all sorts of other things, horrible things, that uh, the Bolshevik regime was able to hold on. The Soviets were able to hold on in World War II with only the most draconian um, terror to keep people siding with the, with the regime. And then, of course, uh, Stalin tried very much to to posit and present the Second World War as a kind of national struggle or national defense against these uh, Germans. But the point is that there was tremendous opposition. Just to bring to the present, I'm rather angered, irritated, you might say, by all, so many politicians in the United States who talk about how much they care about Ukraine and Ukrainians. To me, this is uh, ludicrous because no American politician could even find Ukraine on a map or cared a damn about Ukraine in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Now they talk about, oh, we've got to defend Ukraine by people who have no record of caring about any of the peoples really of the Soviet Union. Remember, during the Second World War, uh, Stalin was a trusted uh, ally of the United States and, of course, of, of Britain and the British Empire during the Second World War. So all of this uh, talk and rhetoric by pol politicians in Washington and other capitals about how much they care about Ukrainians, well, the time to really cared about Ukrainians was when, when it was under the greater, much greater oppression of the Soviet regime than it is today or, or potentially might be under, under Putin. Something called the Cheka. Uh, was created, which later became the KGB, and that was used as a way to counter the counter-offensive. Is that correct? Well, yes. I mentioned the Cheka. I was quoting it from uh, from Churchill. The, the the first, you might say, secret police. The Cheka. It stands for. It comes from the initials for the Extraordinary State Commission for Combating uh, 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 Terrorism and so forth. Anyway, it's 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 initials, and even after the name changed. It was called the GPU, NKVD, uh, OGPU, KGB. The names changed over time. But even the people who were active in it were called themselves, they call them Czechists from the, from the very first uh, incarnation of this extraordinary commission for fighting counter-revolution. It's the anti, the counter-revolution. Well, in the name of counter-revolution, a tremendous latitude and uh, killing was, was permitted. Um, and uh, this, as, as any number of writers will 
have pointed out, uh, Jews played an especially prominent role in the in the uh, uh, secret police, in the Cheka, KGB, and so forth. Um, this was this was one of the reasons why, especially, it was so hated. Remember, I mean, it, it's hard to uh, just in a few minutes go into the history of it, but one of the most uh, terrible episodes of the Soviet Union was the forced collectivization of agriculture during the early 1930s under Stalin. Uh, this meant uh, forcibly uh, uh, taking away land from millions and millions of farming people, peasants, and forcing them in these collective farms because Lenin, uh, I mean, excuse me, Stalin, Lenin was dead by this. Stalin rightly understood that as long as peasants and people had land, this was a source of tremendous resistance to Soviet power. And he, he wasn't able to control them as well as he could in collective farms. But what this meant was going in and seizing uh, enormous quantities of grain, horses, and so forth. Pe people throughout the Soviet Union, Russia and Ukraine especially, resisted. They, they, rather, they killed millions of cattle, horses, rather than have them taken over by the state. And this is borne out even by the statistics at the time of the Soviets. Uh, this was a terrible thing. During the Second World War, one person, Churchill even asked uh, Stalin, he says, well, uh, it's, um, what's going on is, uh, of course, worse than the collectivization. And Stalin said, no, collectivization was worse than the war. It was, it was essentially a war against his own people, a, a, a very, very horrible thing. I mean, I, when, as a young man, I remember talking to a Ukrainian who was a, who was a young boy or whatever during that period. I mean, it's unbelievable. Huge famine, millions of people starving and dying because the regime is carrying out this draconian uh, uh, seizure of land and change uh, and seizure of food and so forth. Anyways, it was, it was terrible. And of course, in Eastern Europe, people are much more aware of the legacy of communism than they are in Western Europe, because that's where the Soviet... I was just in Estonia recently, uh, just a few weeks ago, actually. Estonians are overwhelmingly conscious of just how horrible, how oppressive uh, the Soviet takeover of uh, their country was in 1940, and then again at the end of World War II in 1945 uh, by the Bolsheviks. I mean, in, and Poles have a much greater collective memory of what communism meant and what the Bolsheviks brought into their country than people in Western Europe. It still is appealing to many people in Western Europe and the United States, especially by intellectuals, because it sounds good. Um, and that's, that's one of the big problems, yeah. I've actually read the Communist Manifesto, and it's absolutely mind-numbingly boring. <laughs> well, it's got some funny, it's got some great phrases. It ends up uh, uh, working, working men of all countries unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. You have a world to win. That's kind of inspiring. That's kind of neat. Uh, yeah, that's some boring, boring in a way, but it's got some pithy phrases. Some people say the, phrase, the pithy, the, the more uh, inspiring phrases came from Engels and not from Marx. But the point is the Communist Manifesto uh, understandably, does it has had enormous appeal for, for many, many years for millions of people. It was one of the first, I mean, I read it when I was very, very, I've reread it, reread it many times. And it, I mean, I understand. It's important to understand Marxism did have an enormous appeal. Uh, that, that should not be uh, uh, denied, really. 
And uh, these kind of slogans, yeah, working class, working people of all countries unite. That, that slogan appeared every day at the, on the masthead of Communist Party newspapers all around the world every day. And people were reminded of this slogan over and over and over. And uh, you can get some idea of the, you might say, romance of uh, romantic appeal of it in, uh, well, the movie Reds with uh, Warren Beatty uh, kind of idealizes John Reed, who actually uh, was this, wrote 10 Days That Shook the World. He was a big believer in communism, actually was from my own hometown of Portland, Oregon, actually. But but the point is, I mean, uh, yeah, it's uh, actually a lot of it is is horribly boring. Uh, Capital <laughs> by Karl Marx is unbelievably boring. I remember yes, as a, I read as a that too. man. Of, <laughs> It is so boring. Well, I remember uh, one of the ludicrous things. I, I used to read a lot of Marxist periodicals, and I remember there was a cartoon showing a worker at night with a candle, and he's in his room or attic, and he's uh, this worker. It, look, it looks like a man who's been working all day in a factory, and at night he's looking at Capital, and I thought, this is ludicrous. This is absolutely crazy. The average working person, even the average intellectual, can can hardly make his way through the uh, the the swamps of 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 this turgid volume Capital, actually several volumes by 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 uh, Marx who dedicated his life to it. His wife is supposed to have said, "Well, I wish you would actually write less about Capital and make some Capital." But he lived in poverty throughout his life and so forth. But anyway, yeah, no, I mean it. Much of the whole Marxist. Um, uh, presentation is uh, terribly, terribly boring because it's all based on a kind of intellectual superstructure, an intellectual thing that requires a lot of thinking to feel, understand how the parts all fit together. Uh, what does dialectical materialism mean? What's historical materialism? Uh, what's the labor theory of value? Those are all important concepts in Marxism <clears> that take a long time just to explain even what they mean. And they're essentially wrong. I mean, one of the central tenets of Marxism, which is why the economy never works, is that the value of something is determined solely by how much labor goes into it. Well, that's crazy. That's crazy. I mean, what's the value of uh, a pair of shoes? Well, it depends on how they look, not just how much labor goes into it. What's the, what's the value of a, uh, of a ticket to a sporting event? Well, it depends who's playing. A value of something isn't determined by how much labor goes in it, but it's what people whether it's attractive to people. Uh, a shirt, one shirt uh, takes as much labor as another to make, but it's a, if it's an ugly shirt, it's got polka dots or something, it's not going to sell well. As a, but anyway, this is, that's, that alone is one of the reasons why Marxism is such a failure, because it starts with premises about economics, about history, that are just simply wrong. And uh, efforts to try to make things work on that basis uh, inevitably are, are going to fail. Leading up to this conversation with you, I was uh, doing a bit of research and I, I think it was in the Jerusalem Post or if not the Jerusalem Post, but it was another um, Jewish publication. And in it, it, it made the comment that the Bolsheviks were, quote, the historic sin of the Jews, unquote. Yeah. Yeah, well, that, that's what I, I, I touched on that earlier. For many Jews, Bolshevism, Marxism, is a kind of secular version of Judaism. 
And you'll find even Jewish leaders who, who talk about it in those kind of terms. It has uh, some of the same appeal as the messianic uh, triumphalist uh, narrative that you'll find in the Jewish holy scripture in the, in the Old Testament. Um, now, again, this gets in the uh, field of, of motive, but there's no question that many Jews saw it in those kind of terms, but they felt that this is more uh, rational, more grounded in so-called science than just having a revelation from uh, the Old Testament. And so it sounds more appealing. It sounds more uh, scientific than 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 just saying it's you're doing it on or all this is motivated just by revolution by revelation and by religion. This was initially seen. The Bolshevik Revolution was initially seen as a liberation of the Jewish minority, and it quickly turned in completely the opposite direction, where they became the oppressors. Right, right. Well, that's that's true of almost all uh, revolutionary movements. I mean, people start out and they're fighting against the system, and then when they get in power, uh, very often they will act in a very draconian, oppressive way. And th this happens uh, very often. I mean, the English Civil War, uh, they fought against the king and so forth, but when the uh, parliamentarians, the roundheads won, well, they cut off the head of the King Charles, and then they set up what amounts to a Puritan theocratic Christian state that was very, very oppressive in, in so many ways uh, to, to lots of people. That, that often happens. Um, even minority groups who are oppressed, uh, when they get on top, then they uh, extract a tremendous revenge against the people that they uh, who, who were on top. Topsy-turvy, the people were topsy, become turvy, and the people on the bottom that, that often happens. Usually it doesn't last uh, for a long time. And Bolshevism or the Soviet system changed over time. And eventually in the last 20, 30 years became just a kind of bureaucratic uh, system that people stopped even believing in. This is a very important point that I've tried to make many times that in the last decades of the Soviet Union, um, people in Russia, people in the Soviet Union st stopped believing the slogans. They, they just they just sort of inwardly uh, separated, alienated from the system. The leaders would mouth the same slogans, but they didn't really believe them anymore, and people didn't believe that they believed them anymore. The last Soviet leader who really believed in communism was Nikita Khrushchev, I think. Brezhnev, the other uh, after uh, him, Brezhnev, Kosygin. Uh, and drop off and so forth, they're going through the motions. They don't really believe that if they just push a little bit more, eventually communism will triumph all over the world. There'll be a world union of Soviet socialist republics. Uh, workers will live in great uh, uh, plenty. Uh, war and oppression will end forever. People just stopped believing it. It was just contrary to all the experience. And I think there's a similar crisis going on now in Western Europe and the United States with liberal democracy or American-style democracy. It's not working out uh, the way our leaders say, and they still mouth the same slogans, but people increasingly don't believe them, and they don't even believe the leaders who mouth these slogans anymore. But anyway, that's another uh, subject for another, another session, perhaps. Just for perspective, because this is something that people forget. The majority of the Bolshevik government for many, many years was Jewish, and they only represented about 2% of the Russian population. Is that correct? 
Yes, yes, one and a half, two percent, something like that. That's correct. Yeah, um, I, I'm going to I'm going to quote another thing. This is from William Bullitt. He was the first American ambassador to the uh, Soviet Union in 1933, sent by um, Franklin Roosevelt, and uh, he 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 was made ambassador because he kind of had an enthusiasm for the Bolshevik system. Uh, he was um, later a U.S. ambassador to France, very important uh, diplomat in the American government. But very soon he became very uh, down on the whole Soviet system. And this is he wrote a, a, a 10 page report to Secretary of State Hall in 1936. And he wrote this. He talked about the extra, I'm quoting extraordinary numbers of Jews are employed in all of the commissariats, that is, the branches of Soviet government. Only one out of each 61 inhabitants of the Soviet Union is a Jew. That's about one and a half percent. But 20 of the 61 commissars and vice commissars are Jews. The upper bureaucracy in nearly all commissariats ministries is Jewish. The commissariats of foreign affairs and foreign trade from Litvinov and Rosengoltz down are almost totally Jewish. The commissariat for internal affairs or OGPU, that's the Cheka, the uh, secret police, is under a Jew, Yagoda. So is the state bank. And so is the commissariat for ways of communication, which controls the railroads. The official news service, TASS, which supplies all the newspapers, uh, is under a Jew, Doletsky. The newly created art administration, which controls the entire artistic life of the country, is under a Jew. Only the army is relatively free from Jews, but there are many in the ordnance department. Now, this is written by William Bullitt. He was this American ambassador. He was in Russia. He started out very enthusiastic about the thing. But anyway, my point is that it confirms what your point is, that the percentage of Jews in uh, Soviet Russia or Soviet Union is maybe one and a half, two percent. But they played this enormous outsized role in uh, the Bolshevik administration um, during this period. And it, anyway, that's it confirms your point. This history has led to what appears to be a rise in anti-Semitism in Russia. I would say that um, it, 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 it's not just the history. It's actually based more on uh, a very, very strong sense. <clears throat> Russians have a much greater sense of identity as Russians than people in the United States. America, Americans tend to have a very hyper individualistic sense of identity. This is because uh, America is settled by people who left their homeland to better themselves for, them, for their own, for themselves and their families. Russians uh, have a very kind of well a, a, a strong consciousness that people are Russians or they are Armenians or they're and Jews. And uh, but they they Jews are not just people who have another religion. They are an ethnic group. When Lenin took power, uh, in fact, Lenin's was inclined to say, well, we'll just regard Jews as a religious group. But it was Jewish leaders who came to Lenin and asked that they be regarded as an ethnic group because that's the whole premise of modern Zionism. That Jews are a nationality, not just a religious group. In fact, uh, for most Jews, um, uh, David Ben-Gurion or Albert Einstein are great Jews, even though they're not religious at all. Uh, many, many Jews are uh, uh, honored and uh, talked about as Jews, even though they're not religious, because the primary Jewish identity is, you might say, ethnic rather than, than religious. Um, <clears throat> well, um, uh, so Russians have 
they, 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 all over uh, in countries that are more settled, there's a much greater national ethnic consciousness than there is in, you might say, fluid countries or individualistic countries, especially in the United States. So Russians think of Jews and they, they, they notice and pay attention to the Jewish role in society. It's less and less because of the history of uh, the Soviet Union, but more based on a recent experience. And this is something that I think is happening all over the world. Uh, today, people are less concerned about uh, the past than they are about the obvious uh, reality that Jews play an enormous role in the political and cultural life of the United States and of the world. Um, and also people are very, very aware that the United States, where Jews have tremendous influence and power, gives support to a country, Israel, uh, which under any other, any other country doing what Israel does would be, would be condemned. Uh, but Israel gets a pass, you might say, because it's Jewish. And um, this is increasingly something that everybody uh, is aware of, I think, although they're not allowed to talk about it very openly. And one of the uh, results of that is there's a kind of, I mean, the Amer American officials <clears throat> are forbidden for acknowledging, for example, what everyone knows. Israel has a arsenal of nuclear weapons, but American officials are not allowed even to mention this because uh, certain things would flow inevitably from that recognition. And so American officials basically just shut up about a reality uh, with Israel that everybody knows. Well, why is that? Why is the United States supportive of, of Israel? Well, there's only two basic explanations. One is American leaders are more enlightened, uh, smarter, more uh, morally <clears throat> superior to people in other countries, or Jews have tremendous power and American politicians pay attention to who has power. Well, that's the explanation, really. And I've written about this and so forth. But Americans, uh, uh, well, th this is just a, basically, it's it's more this kind of role that plays, uh, this, this role in the contemporary society we live in plays a much bigger role in people being aware of the kind of Jewish situation and of what you call anti-Semitism than uh, the one happened uh, 50, 60, or 100 years ago. Mm. I think it was in 2013 that Vladimir Putin actually said publicly that the first Soviet government was overwhelmingly Jewish. Yes, I have this piece here, yeah. Um, I, I think I read it in the Times of Israel. Yes, I mean, yeah, I mean, it was it was reported at the time, not uh, uh, when, it, when it happened. And he says, well, yeah, the earlier leaders were Jews, overwhelmingly Jews. And uh, this is... Again, you'll find a lot on our website about, about this as well. There's a long essay by me entitled um, uh, Jewish Role in the Bolshevik Revolution in the Early Soviet Regime. And it gives details and, of course, sources for all of, all, all of these kinds of things. But again, these are points that um, uh, people acknowledge. But the implications of this, the unusual, the very weird role that Jews have played in history, this uh, outsized, this uh, uh, unusual role uh, in cultural life, in the Bolshevik Revolution, in the Soviet system, and in the United States today is something that is sort of known, but it's considered very impolite, impolitic, uh, dangerous to talk about openly. Is there perhaps then a correlation between the pre-Bolshevik government, in other words, the, the 
the Tsar. And what we're seeing today with Putin, because he's got a very high approval rating and he's been there for many years. And I'm just wondering if there's a, a culture within Russia that's wanting a return to those days. In other words, the, the days of the Tsar. And they see Putin perhaps as some sort of modern manifestation of that. In some sense, yes, but in another way, no. Nobody is going back to the days of the Tsar for a lot of a lot of reasons. The the Tsarist regime, I mean, in the in the decades just before World War One, Russia was uh, experiencing a period of great economic growth, uh, very impressive uh, cultural achievement, great writers, uh, poets, uh, musicians, uh, culturally. You know, I mean, the, the, uh, railroads were being built in, in Tsarist Russia at a rate even greater than uh, during the industrialization under Stalin. It was very impressive how Russia was developing. And it's hard to say where it would have gone if there, had, if, if there hadn't been the um, uh, communist uh, Bolshevik takeover. But I, I, I don't think people are going back to that exactly, but Russians overwhelmingly do have a very strong sense of Russia and they have a kind of uh, consciousness identity that way. And it's, it's a different one than Western Europe. Russia is, is different than the rest of Europe. It didn't experience the Renaissance. It didn't experience the Reformation. It didn't go through the experience of the French Revolution. The experiences in Russia um, historically and collectively are just different than they are in the rest of Europe. And uh, so because the even the Russian Orthodox religion comes from Greece, not from through Rome, you might say, and through. So the, there's there's a different consciousness. But finally, there's a there's a strong sort of national ethnic consciousness of of Russia and of um, that that you will not find certainly in a country like the United States. What role do Jews play in 21st century Russia? Um, there's a lot of debate by this. Um, the it's changing very very quickly. After the Soviet Union fell, uh, tremendous power was seized by what they called the oligarchs. The oligarchs were Jews who uh, were able to buy up tremendous resources of Russia, uh, land, mines, uh, uh, natural resources for almost nothing and become very, very wealthy billionaires as a result of this. Uh, this was done under Yeltsin, who was a weak leader. And when Putin took over, he basically made a deal with the, by the way, the oligarchs overwhelmingly were Jewish, uh, incidentally. That's another thing that Russians are conscious of this. They know this. Putin made a deal in a sense with the oligarchs. The deal was uh, you can have your power, you can have your money, but don't play a role in political life. That's up to me. If you cooperate with the system, I'm going to let you hold on to your rather shady, the, 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 the wealth that you obtain through rather shady means and illegal or whatever dubious, dubious means. Now, that's changing because of the war in Ukraine and because of international sanctions, because many of these people have important holdings and ties with uh, the world and the United States and Western Europe. And so many of the oligarchs have left Russia. Uh, they, they're going to lose a lot of their holdings in Russia. 
but so there's a, a real uh, change taking place. It's forcing many uh, Jews to have to take a side. It's interesting that in the Ukraine war, Israel is hedging its bets. It is not as openly supportive of the United States in the Ukraine war because it wants to stand good terms with Russia. Not not just for inter, for the larger uh, international reasons and for the reasons I just mentioned, but also because Russia is looked upon well in much of the Arab world. Syria is a Russian ally. There is actually a Russian uh, naval base in Syria. And uh, Israel doesn't want to um, uh, uh, overtly offend a country that plays a big role internationally and in, in the Middle East. Remember, countries that are going to be more intelligent try to look at all of these, whatever problems come up in a long-term way. They looked for the period after it's all over because after the war in Ukraine is over, Russia's still gonna be there. It's still gonna be an important country. And uh, far-sighted re leaders realize they've gotta live with Russia. Uh, you might not like it, you might dislike certain things about it, but Russia is a fact in the world, so is China. And Russia isn't going to turn into a version of the United States. And China is still going to be Chinese. And India is going to be India. Uh, countries are not going to change their basic character. And uh, more far-sighted uh, leaders uh, look ahead for, to the time when they've got to deal with the period after the war. And so the, anyway, back to the uh, in Russia today, it's, it's changing. The Jewish role has been has has been uh, enormously brought down just in the last few years. And even then, it was largely in economic life, not in political life. I don't know if this is relevant, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Did the creation of the State of Israel play any role? Well, when the State of Israel was founded in 1948, uh, the Soviet Union initially supported it because they saw it as a way of bringing down the power of Britain. Uh, after the end of the Second World War, of course, the rivalry between the Soviet Union on one hand and the United States and Britain on the other uh, came to the fore, was, was more and more obvious. And so initially in 1948, uh, Stalin supported uh, the founding of, the, of the, the State of Israel, as did the United States, of course, for other, slightly different reasons because um, this is a way of, of, of uh, bringing down the British. Remember, in 1948, uh, for many Zionists, the big enemy was, was Britain, because Britain had controlled Palestine. Of course, the Arabs didn't like it, Britain, the British rule either. But very quickly, um, that changed, and the Soviet Union saw that uh, supporting Israel was not good because Israel is really not just a country like any country. It's a bastion of, you might say, international Jewry. It's a, a, a bastion. And, and so he was very concerned that Jews in, in the Soviet Union had these allegiances to and support and sympathy for a foreign country, to Israel and to, and so that's one of the reasons why Stalin didn't like that. But, but the point is that, <clears throat> um, uh, uh, the state of Israel was um, seen during most of the Cold War as an outpost of the United States and opposed by the United States, opposed by Russia and the Soviet Union for that reason. So that's the, the short answer, I guess, to your question. If we look back now over the last century or so, in your mind, what lessons can we learn? 
There's a number of very important lessons. One is that uh, people should be very, very skeptical of ideologies uh, that are not based on uh, real human experience, that are utopian, because they may sound good and people may put a lot of effort in them, but they will eventually uh, lead only to great suffering and misery trying to make reality conform with the ideology. Uh, this is a, we have to deal with human beings and with life as, as they are and as it is, not as we wish it to be. And no ideology in modern times or for centuries uh, has been as popular and as utopian as Marxism was. That's one thing. The other is just the history of the Soviet Union, I think, shows that the premises of Marxism and of any kind of radical egalitarianism are wrong. If, this, if the history of the 20th century teaches anything, it's that multicultural, multi-ethnic states are fragile. They break up, they're, they're, and they can only be held together by, by force. Uh, maybe it's people say, well, it shouldn't be like that. Maybe it shouldn't. But um, the Soviet Union broke up into 16 different countries. Yugoslavia broke up into six, seven, eight countries. Uh, after the uh, end of the Soviet period, uh, the Czechs and the Slovaks decided to uh, give up on Czechoslovakia and go, become separate countries. But that's a human thing. People prefer to live in countries ruled by people like themselves and uh, among people like themselves. It's a, it's a sort of normal thing. Uh, not, it's, throughout history, this has been the case. And so uh, the Soviet Union should be a, a great warning, a, great, a lesson about uh, the premises of a universalist egalitarian society, which is what the Soviet Union promised to be. And, um, and be very, very cautious, very skeptical of those people who promise uh, a kind of society that's not based in history or in experience, but based on a kind of idea of what ought to be. Mark, how can I follow your work? You can check out our website, uh, Institute for Historical Review. The website is ihr.org, ihr.org. And um, it's, of course, very accessible. And we have also an affiliated IHR store that sells uh, books and discs and other things. So please visit our site. And um, uh, that's where you can find it, ihr.org. Mark Weber, thank you so much for joining me in the trenches. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.